Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to True Restoration. Here is your host. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of The Spiritual Life. I am Father Bernard Utley, and today I will be continuing last episode's topic of contemplation, uh, particularly about the classic three signs of contemplation as given by St. John of the Cross. This episode will be long, but in a future episode, I will condense everything into a much shorter talk, perhaps into a 15 or 20 minute episode of just the main points about contemplation. But today I wanted to give you more in-depth and more material from other authors. In the last episode, I established that this dark night of the senses generally appears fairly early in the spiritual life. A few authors like Father Tankery and Father Poulain and their school of thought put it way far in the spiritual life, in the unitive stage, whereas St. John of the Cross and the majority of mystical theologians and spiritual writers put it much earlier, namely as the transitional period between the purgative and the illuminative stages, sometimes called the beginners and proficient stages. St. John of the Cross said that this night of the senses is common and comes to many. In his famous mystical work, The Dark Night of the Soul, Book 1, Chapter 1, he says, Into this dark night, souls begin to enter when God draws them forth from the state of beginners, which is the state of those that meditate on the spiritual road, and begins to set them in the state of progressives, which is that of those who are already contemplatives, to the end that after passing through it, they may arrive at the state of the perfect which is that of the divine union of the soul with God, unquote. The period in the spiritual life that marks the transition to the prayer of contemplation is called by St. John of the Cross, the dark night of the senses. It is a trial and a crisis in the spiritual life, but this crisis is significant progress. However, progress in the spiritual life is often misunderstood because true progress tend to have certain side effects, as it were, which give to the soul the impression that it is going backwards, losing ground instead of progressing, especially since we tend to judge spiritual things by how we feel. There's a tendency, and it's natural enough, to take such things as aridity, the inability to meditate, distractions, temptations against faith or purity, and various other interior trials as infallible signs that our spiritual life is all wrong and off track. And unfortunately, there have been some spiritual writers and directors, there's directors, who have taught that interior trials, trials are always punishments for some personal fault or hidden sin, and that we should aim at and be able to attain to a quote-unquote unclouded union with God in this life. Such writers erroneously teach that we can avoid all aridity and desolation of soul if, and here's the catch, we follow their advice. But this idealistic and guaranteed approach to spirituality is dangerous and can, or rather has, done untold harm to devout souls. Now, many of these books are not available today as, as much as they were in the old days, but they, they, uh, some of the ideas are still around. And such a view is not only highly discouraging, it's wrong, hopelessly and utterly wrong. It is stoicism, or rather, it is trying to live in a fantasy land. It is not Christianity, because the cross, not only in the form of exterior physical suffering, but also in the form of interior trial, is the mark and heritage of a true follower of Christ, and our portion as long as we live in this valley of tears. 
So interior trials of aridity and temptations or the like are normal and healthy phenomena in the spiritual life. They are not necessarily infallible signs that something is wrong. In fact, it is often those very things which we take to be signs of unprogress that are actually signs indicating the beginning of real fervor and solid progress. And this sounds odd, but it's true. God's ways are not our ways, and they usually seem strange to us. He seems to like to take us by the path we least expected, a a way which, in circumstances and to suffer things which we suppose to be absolutely disastrous and detrimental for our interior life. But of course, he knows infinitely better than we do what is truly good for us. As scripture says, God chastises those whom he loves. And our progress will depend on the way we react to these trying experiences and unpleasant feelings. There are many souls, both religious and lay, to whom God is trying to lead to contemplation, but either through ignorance or bad direction, do not know how to cooperate with his action and grace. And failure to comprehend what is going on in this state will cause one to unwittingly frustrate and hinder God's loving plan for one's sanctification, and it resulting in a more difficult and unnecessary trial in the spiritual life, which may eventually lead one to give up the pursuit of the interior life completely. Because nothing sounds so wonderful and delightful in books than contemplation, but nothing can be so crucifying and mystifying and confusing when first experienced. At least this is so at the beginning, until one acquires the habit and taste for this new form of prayer. And then it becomes for the contemplative a priceless treasure, a bottomless well of interior strength and joy and peace. Now it often happens that those who are sincerely trying to avoid all sin, both mortal sin and venial sin, and have earnestly striven to give themselves to daily prayer, find themselves sooner or later unable to pray as they once did. Something has changed and they feel helpless in prayer. Gone are the days of meditations full of light and warm feelings. Gone are the days of that attraction for a multiplicity of vocal prayers and devotions. Of course, the soul could force itself to meditate and force itself to recite many prayers, but it feels that such forced labor is not truly prayer, but interior oppression. This distresses the soul very much because it sincerely wants to pray and be united with God, but it cannot seem to find him as it once did. The soul wants God and not merely thoughts about God. The soul wants God and not just feelings about him, not just highfalutin ideas about him, but God himself. It wants to adore him and love him directly, simply, without words or thoughts, but by simply gazing upon him, its beloved, in pure faith and desire and intense love. The classic signs that God is drawing the soul towards a simpler, more profound type of prayer, namely the contemplation, are the following. The curious inability to meditate and an interior repugnance in reflecting on anything definite during prayer. Aridity, that is the lack of sensible consolation and sweetness, combined with the mysterious discontentment with the things of the world, and yet an equally mysterious satisfaction with and desire to remain gazing upon God in simplicity, silence, faith, and love. In other words, one feels an interior repugnance to think and speak much in prayer, 
and yet one finds great peace and strength and a deep consolation beyond feelings in just remaining attentive to the presence of God and silence and faith. And naturally, this dry, senseless way of communing with God in prayer can be trying and confusing at first, for the soul is accustomed to approach him, is unaccustomed, rather, to approach him in such a spiritual manner, as spirit to spirit, without using words or the imagination. This is where confidence and trust in God is of vital importance, lest the soul, fearing that is displeasing God or is idle in such prayer, tries to force itself to pray as it used to, but cannot any longer, or what is worse, gives up prayer altogether. But such a soul must never, under any circumstances, give up this prayer simplicity, but give itself completely generously and lovingly to this new attraction. For this prayer is the beginning, but only the beginning, of infused mystical contemplation. It's the humble gateway that is meant to lead us, if we are faithful and generous and persevering, to, to a profound sanctity and to the heights of mystical contemplation, of mystical union with God. That is, to what the saints term transforming union of the soul and its mystical marriage with God himself. If we are in this state, we will often feel that we have lost our prayer life, lost our spiritual life, that we are losing ground, wasting time, that we are idle in prayer, that we should be busy thinking many pious thoughts and meditating on various holy subjects and reciting many prayer formulas rather than praying in such a quote-unquote idiotic way. But that's not the case. This is not so according to the masters of the spiritual life. This dry prayer is a sign of progress, and we should abandon ourselves to this new attraction with complete trust and generosity. We can compare the way in which human love and friendship progresses and develops to the progress and development of prayer. Prayer is what nourishes our love for God, and one could say that our prayer is the very measurement of our love for God. When two persons first meet, there are words of introduction. Conversation is somewhat formal and forced and guarded, usually kept to generic standby topics such as the weather and health. Silence at this point is embarrassing and uncomfortable, especially when it lasts more than five seconds. But after they meet again and again, they begin to feel more at home and at ease in each other's company. They begin to say things more naturally without an elaborate introduction or fear of expressing their true thoughts and opinions and feelings. And as they begin to learn more and more about each other, about each other's good and bad qualities, their likes and dislikes, a friendship is formed, particularly if they seem to have compatible or even complementary personalities. And over time, this friendship may ripen into a kind of love. Now, this, they simply desire to be in the presence of each other. Words become more or less superfluous. There is now a mutual understanding between them, and much can be communicated by only a few words, a look, a smile, a nod of the head, or whatever. Silence between friends, or rather lovers, in certain circumstances, of course, speaks volumes. So in this progress of friendship and love, we can see the progress of love of God and prayer as well. In the beginning of the spiritual life, more vocal prayer is usually required. The soul feels obliged to do all the talking, 
as it were, and usually with someone else's words and sentiments in a formula, then the soul begins to feel freer and at ease expressing its own feelings and desires to God with its own words, however awkward and inadequate they may seem at first. The soul cannot be in restrained by a set of rules in prayer or limited to a formula. It needs to express its own love and devotion with all simplicity and sincerity. The soul loves to dwell and meditate on God, its beloved. It desires to learn more and more about him and his works. So meditation and effective prayer is the growing of friendship. But contemplation is the silence of lovers. At this point, the soul does not want merely thoughts about God, as I said before, but God himself. All the soul wants is his will, and the soul is drawn more and more to remain in the divine presence in a loving simplicity and a complacency, a loving attentiveness to God. So we see there's a, a similarity, an analogy between human friendship and love and divine friendship and love. There's a similarity there. Now, let me give here the three signs as described by St. John of the Cross, and then I will take each sign singly and go into uh, each one more thoroughly. Now, these three signs are, the, are what indicate that the soul is now at that stage of transition between meditation and the lower forms of prayer and the beginnings of infused contemplation. St. John speaks about these signs in several places in his writings, but here I will quote at length from just the dark night of the soul. Sometimes it's called the obscure night. This is from Book 1, Chapter 7. Since then, the conduct of these beginners upon the way of God is ignoble and has much to do with their love of self and their own inclinations. God desires to lead them farther. He seeks to bring them out of that ignoble kind of love to a higher degree of love for him to free them from the ignoble exercises of sense and meditation with which, as we have said, they seek God so unworthily and in so many ways that are unbefitting, and to lead them to a kind of spiritual exercise wherein they can commune with him more abundantly and are freed more completely from imperfections. For they have now had practice for some time in the way of virtue and have persevered in meditation and prayer, and because of the sweetness and pleasure they have found therein, they have lost their love of the things of the world and have gained some degree of spiritual strength in God. This has enabled them to some extent to refrain from creature desire, so that for God's sake they are now able to suffer a light burden and a little aridity without turning back to a time they found more pleasant. When they are going about these spiritual exercises with the greatest delight and pleasure, and when they believe that the sun of divine favor is shining most brilliantly upon them, God turns all this light of theirs into darkness and shuts against them the door and the source of the sweet spiritual water which they are tasting in God whenever and for as long as they desired. And thus he leaves them so completely in the dark that they know not whither to go with their sensible imagination and meditation, for they cannot advance a step in meditation as they were accustomed to do before. Their inward sense being submerged in the night and left with such dryness that not only do they experience no pleasure and consolation in spiritual things and good exercises in which they were wont to find their delights and pleasures, but instead they find insipidity and bitterness in the things mentioned. For as I have said, 
God now sees that they have grown a little and are becoming strong enough to lay aside their swaddling clothes and be taken from the gentle breast. So he sets them down from his arms and teaches them to walk on their own feet, which they feel to be very strange, for everything seems to be going wrong with them. Unquote. Now, instead of quoting St. John of the Cross from all the other places he mentions the three signs, I will instead quote Abbot John Chapman, who summarizes this very well. Abbot John Chapman is someone who I will be quoting a lot in today's episode, as he has written a lot about contemplation in his spiritual letters and, ha and have given the best practical advice about it. His spiritual letters, which are reprinted, are a goldmine of practical spiritual wisdom in regards to prayer and contemplation. They are called the spiritual letters of Dom John Chapman. Uh, he, he was the fourth abbot of Downside Abbey in England, and the book uh, was edited by Dom Roger Huddleston, OSB, printed by Sheedon Ward, 1935. So I will be referring to uh, Abbot Chapman. And every time I refer to him, it's taken from his spiritual letters. I highly recommend trying to find a reprint of his work. So Abbot Chapman says this, quote, The signs which indicate that meditation is to be given up and a different kind of prayer substituted are described by St. John of the Cross in three places. And a footnote, under the head of meditation, I include not only strict and formal meditation, according to the method of St. Ignatius, or any other regular method, but all thinking out of some particular subject, representation of mysteries to the imagination and pious considerations. Unquote. First, in the Ascent of Mount Carmel, Book 2, Chapter 13, St. John lists impossibility of meditation, no pleasure in using the imagination, delight in being alone with God and waiting lovingly upon him. Next, in The Obscure Night, which is the dark night of the soul, Book 1, Chapter 9, there is dryness, without comfort either in God or in creatures, painful anxiety as to fervor, inability to meditate. And lastly, more shortly, but with more explicit directions as to conduct in the state, in the long digression in the third stanza of The Living Flame of Love. So Abbot Chapman was just listing of where in the works of St. John of the Cross these three signs are listed. But many persons pass long years in this dark night when they cannot meditate and yet are afraid to contemplate, and the signs may be less easy to recognize. They have tried methods, one after another. They have tried reading and pondering, and then reading again, a good way of keeping off distractions. Alas, perhaps they have almost given up mental prayer and despair. They find it hard to believe that they are in the mystical, obscure night. They do not feel urged by a frequent thought of God, nor do they dare to say that they have a disgust of creatures. On the contrary, they have found the spiritual life so dry that they have felt thrown upon creatures for consolation. They have often taken refuge in distractions which are not sinful, because recollectedness seems impossible. They have imagined themselves to be going back because they have no devotion, no feelings, and perhaps they are really going back since they have not learnt the right path forward." Unquote. Let me repeat that last line of Abbot Chapman. As I said before, progress in the spiritual life is often misunderstood because true progress tends to have certain side effects, as it were, which give to the soul the impression 
that it's going backwards on losing ground instead of progressing. Abbott Chapman says they have imagined themselves to be going back because they have no devotion, no quote-unquote feelings, and perhaps they are really going back since they have not learnt the right path forward, unquote. So progress is sneaky like that. It's a little disguised, and it, which is a good thing because it humbles the soul. If we were to see and feel progress, we probably would just be proud of it and consider it all our own doing instead of God's grace. So in St. John of the Cross's teaching in regard to the dark night of the senses and the dark night of the spirit, there is an active side to them and a passive side to them. So Basically, what the soul does is described in his work, The Ascent of Mount Carmel, and what God does to the soul is described in his book, The Dark Night of the Soul. And the soul needs these passive trials, or its sanctification will be woefully incomplete. It needs the dark night of the senses. It needs the dark night of the soul. It needs that. God is the primary agent in sanctification, and after we have done all that we can— we will still be very imperfect and have many faults and failings and vices that God will need to burn out of us, purge out of us. And he does this through the dark night of the senses, through various trials in our spiritual life. But in the, in the, the life of prayer, it's primarily the dark night of the senses and the dark night of the soul. They are really kind of just one night, one dark night for the soul, but they are split up into the, the lower nature and the higher nature. And the dark night of the senses is very common. It comes to a lot more. Dark, dark night of the spirit is a more advanced uh, trial that uh, few actually make it to, but that is really needed for the, the higher states of mystical prayer and contemplation and sanctity. So St. John lists three signs in different orders, in different places, but there, there's the three signs there, and they are usually listed this way. And this is the way that I, I will treat them today in this talk. One, the soul is unable to meditate. Two, the soul takes no pleasure in using the imagination or fixing it on any particular thing, earthly or heavenly. And three, the soul delights to be alone in quiet and repose, waiting lovingly upon God, without reflecting upon anything or even desiring to do so. So that's three signs right there. The soul is unable to meditate. The soul that number two, the soul takes no pleasure in the things of God or even the things of creatures. It's kind of torn between them. It, it, it is. It doesn't feel consolation like it used to. And three, the soul also then delights to be alone with God, and that is a very important sign. So the importance of knowing and understanding these three signs is this. These signs indicate to the soul or to the soul's spiritual director that one is entering and experiencing contemplation. And only when all three signs are present in the soul simultaneously is it justified in leaving meditation or effective prayer and vocal prayers and proceeding to the prayer of contemplation as one's habitual form of prayer. If only one of these signs were present, the cause is something other than the grace of contemplation. For example, if a soul were unable to meditate, which a lot of people are, most people on the street couldn't meditate, but found great pleasure in worldly entertainment and had no desire to be alone with God, then that inability is not a sign of contemplation, of course, but rather sloth or worldliness or whatever. You need all three, but the third is the most important. 
Now, let me take each of these three signs and go in, into each of them more thoroughly. The first sign is that one finds oneself unable to meditate. What do we mean by meditation? Meditation, properly so-called, is the thinking out of a religious subject using the various faculties of the soul, such as the imagination, the memory, the reason, with the ultimate practical aim of stirring up the will to make acts of faith and love and humility, etc., and to form practical resolutions. So basically, you think about an event in the life of Christ, and you try to form it in your mind, the imagination, you, you form the scene and what our Lord was saying and what he's doing. You remember all the things that you've uh, I've read about that. You remember the words of our Lord. You try to reason through, okay, he said this because of this. He did this because of this. And that that applies to me because of this. And that is what meditation is. And then you form a practical resolution. If Jesus mean, uh, meant this, then that's what I'm, I'm going to do this. If he wants, to, he wants us to be humble like a little child, I'm going to try to humble myself like a little child. That's what meditation is. It's that simple. But you use your imagination, you use your reasoning, you use all the faculties in order to grow in your knowledge of the faith, grow in love of God, grow in humility and the other virtues. So basically, meditation is thinking about the truths of faith or the event in, uh, in the life of Christ or his passion and death, and then trying to form a resolution, trying to form acts of love, acts of faith because of that mystery. And as Abba Chapman said, under the head of meditation is included not only formal meditation, like what St. Ignatius of Loyola made, but any thinking out of a particular subject for prayer representing in our imagination a mystery of the faith or a mystery in the life of Christ, any pious consideration. Now, this is what St. John of the Cross says, When a man cannot meditate nor exert his imagination nor derive any satisfaction from it as he is wont to do. That's what he was talking about. The time comes when the things we have continuously meditated on fail to move us. And this is just common sense. When the more the more you think about the of uh, one topic over and over, the first time it moved you a lot, second time maybe a little uh, less. But as more and more, sometimes it just failed to have the same impact that it did the first time or the second time. You become used to it, uh, and then the affections of the soul sometimes begin to pall. They don't. They're not as uh, spontaneous, and then eventually nothing seems to move the soul to devotion. But all the old thoughts and pious reflections don't produce the same effect in the soul as they once did, and they leave the soul dry. And, and in this sign of contemplation, the soul feels a great repugnance in reflecting and centering the mind on anything during prayer. This repugnance and difficulty is primarily experienced during prayer. This does not mean that one cannot force oneself to think about religious subjects or imagine a mystery of the faith. But as soon as one forces oneself to think too much in prayer, the sense of praying ceases, and one is merely thinking. And thinking is not prayer. Prayer is the raising of the mind and heart to God. Meditation is meant to enable us to, uh, to consider motives for loving God and training the will to love God. Once it has done its job, then love is born and the goal has been reached. The thoughts are like ladders to get you to the next level and you don't need them any longer because you don't want to go, you don't want to go uh, backwards. You want to go forwards and higher towards God. Again, in this sign, 
you don't want thoughts about God. You want God himself. And you begin to realize that the greatest idea of God falls infinitely short of the reality of God himself. And this is just common sense, that only in heaven will you see God adequately as he is in himself. In this life, all our thoughts about God, and they may be true, but only to a certain point, God is ever greater than any thought that we could imagine. Because if we could think about God perfectly in this life, it would be heaven. So the soul begins to realize that, that I don't want just a fancy idea of God. I want God himself. I want the thing himself, the thing itself. Just like uh, uh, if you were in love with a human person, uh, w- with your wife or, 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 or spouse or whatever, you don't want just fancy thoughts about that person. You want the person himself or herself. And this is a, a very crucial point in the spiritual life, and it's very hard to to vocalize, but it's the same thing when you are kneeling in front of a crucifix. You're not kneeling, praying to the crucifix. You're praying to the person who, who that crucifix, that, that uh, figure represents, namely Christ himself, crucified, the crucified himself. And you wouldn't be satisfied in just hugging the, the crucifix. That's only symbolic of the real person that you want to embrace and you want to show your love to. The same thing in prayer. The words, the images, eventually that's not enough. That doesn't satisfy you. It leaves you dry. You want the real person, the person behind those words and images. The images don't move you anymore. You want the person. And that is really where contemplation, the loving contemplation begins. So what is interesting in this sign of contemplation is that at first, uh, one wants to uh, is unable to find comfort in reaching God in the old ways. You try, but you can't reach God as you used to in the normal way. Now, it's not that the soul doesn't naturally want to think about God. In fact, it is what brought you so much peace and joy to the soul. Now, simply, it can't think or meditate as it once did. There's something going on. Something has happened. Something is happening. Let us recall the example given in the first episode on contemplation where we had a young seminarian who seemed to be progressing from day to day with great fervor and devotion, and then suddenly was hit with profound dryness in prayer and the inability to meditate. Let me repeat. This is from Father Gabriel of St. Mary Magdalene. Quote, But one fine day, lo and behold, the whole scene has changed. He goes faithfully to the chapel at the first sound of the bell for mental prayer, accustomed as he is to sensibly sweet and ardent love. He seems to have walked into an atmosphere which is glacial. He does not know what is the matter, but it is as though all at once God has withdrawn to a distance. Since he wants to have him near again, the good youth returns to his wanted meditation. Again, he takes up the consideration of a mystery, often hitherto a source of great sweetness, the institution of the Eucharist, in the presence of which he has found such great joy. Useless. He cannot succeed in fixing his attention upon the mystery. It is impossible to string together two holy thoughts. 
Somewhat depressed, he decides to pass on to the effective part of his prayer, hoping at least to be able to express his love for God. But here, his experience is experiencing another difficulty. It is absolutely impossible to move his heart. He remains cold, frozen. What is to be done? No longer knowing where to turn, he ends by resigning himself. Patience, he thinks. It will be better tomorrow. Tomorrow comes and brings with it the same trial. If you cannot meditate, it is perhaps because you do not prepare sufficiently carefully. Try to do better. Take your little book, and if you cannot succeed in fixing your attention upon the subject of meditation, read over the meditation and keep it in front of your eyes, says his spiritual director. It is quite useless, Father, repeats the cleric after a day or two. I get tired and do not succeed. I feel, I feel a distaste for it, and my mind is blank. I feel an extreme repugnance to going to prayer, whereas previously it made all my delight. Unquote. Now, this sign is not the most important of the three signs, but it is perhaps the most characteristic of the night of the senses, because it is precisely that the senses get into a night in which they do not work like they once did in prayer. The reasoning, the imagination, the memory were once able to assist the soul in prayer, then all of a sudden they stop. They get bogged down. They get chained down, as it were. And this is extremely distressing to the soul. The old tools which fed its devotion and prayer are gone. Now let's assume that the presence of this sign is not the result of laziness and that it exists with the two other signs which we'll talk about. This sign is indicative that something is happening deep within the soul which causes this night of the senses, this inability to think and to reason and to imagine like it once did. We have to understand that what contemplation is in itself. St. John of the Cross tells us that contemplation is infused loving knowledge of God, that he himself is mystically, that is mysteriously, infusing into the soul directly, bypassing the imagination and memory. This is what St. John of the Cross says in The Dark Night of the Soul, speaking about this sign. He says, quote, that the soul is no longer able to meditate or reason by the use of the sense of imagination as aforetime, however much it may endeavor to do so, for God now begins to communicate himself to it, no longer through sense, as was the case, by means of reasonings, which both united and divided its knowledge, but by pure spirit in which there is no succession of thoughts or ideas, communicating himself by an act of simple contemplation to which neither the exterior or interior senses of the lower part of the soul can attain, so that from now on the imagination and fantasy cannot gain any help in such consideration. Unquote. This is crucial information that not too many people uh, have read about or know about. Abbot Chapman, in, in many of his spiritual letters, more than any other author that I have come across, gives practical advice concerning the state of prayer. And this inability to meditate because of contemplation, he calls the ligature, which is uh, mystical writers call this case, it, they call it the ligature or the binding of the faculties. And I will read some of these thoughts regarding some of his thoughts uh, regarding the ligature, and they are very important. You might have to re-listen several times to get the full import of what he is saying. Again, I will be quoting Abbot John Chapman a lot today. Abbot Chapman says, quote, 
The reason why meditation is impossible is that when one takes to prayer, the intellect is occupied in doing something else, namely contemplating. But this contemplation is so obscure that it is unperceived. It is subconscious, like the circulation of the blood, but quite as real. It is deep down at the root of the intellect, and in um, unimaginative and unemotional people has absolutely no effect on the imagination and emotions. In imaginative and emotional people, it does translate itself into phantasmata, and the imagination and emotions may be fully of joy, uh, etc., prayer of quiet, union, or visions and locutions. So basically, at the beginning, it's going to be subconscious, imperceptible, this contemplation. God is infusing knowledge straight to your intellect, not to your lower senses like the memory and imagination. So just get that straight. In another place, he says, quote, where Father Poulain calls the ligature, he explains it wrongly, is simply the fact that one can't easily put one's mind to two things at once. When the intellect is occupied with God, it can't think out a subject and meditate. When the will is fixed on God, it can't run about after other things. For example, you know what it is to try and say the Our Father slowly and devoutly, with the result that you can't imagine what it means. I think most people know this. Another example is to read a difficult book while you are half listening to other people talking to each other. You read the words again and again and then read them half aloud and they convey no meaning. In the case of the Our Father, if it is no conscious distraction that prevents you, your understanding the words, it is the ligature. Namely, the more devout you try to be, the more meaningless the words seem because you are simply driving your intellect more and more wholly into the imperceptible contemplation. That this is so is shown by the way it goes further when the state of prayer makes it impossible to read a book or yet further pr to pronounce the words of the office. It makes contemplatives into idiots for the moment upon occasions. It is just the same in effect as the ordinary absence of mind which we suffer from concentration on one thought. Only in the case of the ligature, the thought happens to be more or less imperceptible. So let me just clarify again what he is saying, that since God is infusing knowledge to your, directly to your intellect, even without you realizing it, your attention is drawn towards there. So it's difficult to divide your attention between that, that subconscious infusion of knowledge that God is giving you of, about himself, that he's drawing you to himself, and for you to concentrate on uh, the meditation or the prayer formula. The more and more that you concentrate on the meaning of the words, you're pulling yourself away from that contemplation and you lose that whole sense of devotion, the whole sense of prayer, and it just becomes a mental exercise of thinking. But the more you pull yourself towards this devotion, the more you let yourself go in that direction, the more you can't concentrate on the words. It's just the basic psychological fact that you cannot give whole attention to two things at once. And this is why when you are watching the television and someone's talking to you, you don't listen fully to either. you got to concentrate on one. And that's why people get annoyed when you're like, hey, can you stop? Can you turn off the TV for a second? Let me talk to you. Or can you put down the newspaper for a minute? I'm talking to you. The same type of thing in contemplation. God is infusing in the high part of your intellect 
and the lower senses like your imagination and memory become hindered. That's what they call the ligature. Abbott Chapman says, the ligature, that is the beginning of the ligature, what makes it impossible to meditate in time of prayer, begins, of course, while people are trying to meditate. The advice I give is to renounce trying to do the impossible and to take to the only kind of prayer which is possible. So it is evident that the advice does not cause the ligature, which happens in most pious people, and they never cease to try and meditate. All their efforts are against it. When, on the contrary, they find somebody who tells them to give up these vain efforts and merely give themselves to God, the ligature is not thereby intensified. On the contrary, I believe it gradually weakens. This seems to be all in favor of my explanation and against what psychologists would say. Unquote. In another place, he says this, St. John of the Cross means that we can't use our reason in the ordinary way because our reason works habitually by means of images, principally auditive, that is, imagined words, also visual, that is, mental pictures. Consequently, when the imagination is empty and won't work, the reason is powerless and can't think. As a fact, there is a higher use of the reason without images, and this is precisely the infused contemplation. It is superconscious. That is, we generally know that something is going on, but we cannot tell anyone else or even tell ourselves what it is because we only describe by images. Hence, when we reflect upon it and try to put it into words, we can only call it nothing or vac vacancy. Only we know, really, that nothing means the all and that there is nothing so unknowable as the unknowable, which is God himself. Unquote. So basically, again, God is greater than any of our, 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 our ideas about him. And this is why there's that great spiritual writer, uh, a great spiritual book called The Cloud of Unknowing, that God is above all our knowledge, that we can have some ideas about him, some, uh, some, some analogies of his being, but we don't, we don't see God face to face. And in this life, our knowledge of God is very imperfect. He is kind of in that cloud of unknowing that we can't see him clearly, but we are able to love him directly. We can shoot an arrow, as it were, through the cloud and reach God, but in this life we cannot see God directly. We cannot know him adequately uh, as he is in himself. We have we see through a glass darkly, as St. Paul says, but we can love God directly. That's why in this life, Charity is more important than knowledge. And lastly, another quote of Abbot Chapman, It is common enough for those who have any touch of mysticism, which I regard as having a natural base, though it is a grace of faithful use, to be absolutely unable to find any meaning in vocal prayers. If you simply read them without praying, you can understand them as well as any other book. But if you turn to God, all thinking and understanding stops. I suppose this is because something else is going on. The rule is simply, pray as you can, and do not try to pray as you can't. Take yourself as you find yourself, and start from that. Again, someday you may find the axe or continued act of love stops. It has gone. You can't find it. God is hidden. Then you take that as his will, and do the best you can in darkness and humility. But do not worry yourself about vocal prayers. It is good to say some, but simply to stay with God is best." Unquote. I think this is 
one of the greatest pieces of advice which Abbott Chapman gives over and over, namely to praise you can and do not try to praise you can't. In other words, if you can't meditate, you can't meditate, contemplate. If you can meditate, then meditate. At the beginning, and this is important, at the beginning of this transition period, the inability to meditate is not usually continuous, so that sometimes the soul can meditate and other times it cannot. So when it cannot, be content with a simplified version of prayer of just gazing upon God. Eventually, this state will become habitual and the inability will become permanent. But at first, it is on and off. And it is important to go with the flow, to follow the lead of God and the inspiration of divine grace. When you can meditate, when you can use effective prayer, do so. When you cannot, and you feel attracted to a simplified gazing upon God, if you just want to be silent in God's presence, then do that. And that is what I'll talk about a little later. Now, I wanted to quote from a different author. He is Father Gabriel Diefenbach, a Capuchin priest, a Franciscan, in his book, Common Mystic Prayer, which was printed in 1946, which I highly recommend. He speaks about this ligature and the effects it could have. Quote, this same spiritual impression by which God is delicately absorbing the mind and inclining the will to a simple operation of love also acts as an impediment to vocal prayer. If one begins to say some vocal prayer, he will quickly find repugnance or weariness in it, slight or pronounced according to the strength of the interior prayer. He may be able to, some with, with some effort, say the words as words, but if he tries to think of their meaning or arouse devotion by them, he will not succeed. The reason is that the attention cannot be fixed on two things at one time. It is much the same as with a person absorbed in the reading of a book. His mind is oblivious to all else. If someone nearby addresses him, he may not be consciously aware of it for some moments. He hears the sound of the voice, but the meaning of the words will be understood only when they have penetrated his consciousness, that is, when he has withdrawn his attention from what he is reading. In the case of contemplative prayer, it is the spiritual impression absorbing the mind in the loving attention that makes it impossible for the mind to think of and be attentive to something else. The simpler activity of the soul's faculties checks their discursive use, and vice versa. Of course, nothing is said here of vocal prayers of obligation, such as the divine office. These are said in conformity to the obligations assumed. But if one's new state brings a strong abstraction of mind due to the operation of interior prayer, a material recitation will generally be the only possible one. The attention cannot be centered on the meaning of the words, for the heart is attentive rather to its own loving attraction. Generally, there will, be, there will not be great difficulty. There are, however, more pronounced cases, especially in the lives of the saints, where the interior operation of grace is so strong as to hinder the recitation of all vocal prayer, even the divine office. These instances furnish sufficient reason for dispensation, which accordingly has been given, for example, to St. Ignatius of Loyola. But such cases are comparatively rare. Father Poulain remarks that such cases meet the objection sometimes heard. If your prayer thus prevents your performing exercises that are of obligation, it cannot come from God, for he would be contradicting himself. As this author further observes, God is no more contradicting himself here than when he sends an illness that hinders the hearing of Sunday Mass or the keeping of the Friday abstinence. When a law of the church is morally impossible of execution, 
it ceases to oblige. God would be contradicting himself only were he still to impose the obligation while taking away the power of fulfilling it. Generally, in the beginning of mystic prayer, the difficulty of saying vocal prayers of obligation will not be sufficient to prevent at least their material recitation with the heart lovingly attentive to God. Unquote. This is something that we talked about in uh, the monastery in the recitation of the Divine Office, that, that uh, even according to St. Thomas Aquinas, there's three levels of attention. You can The lowest level is attention to the words themselves. The second level is attention to the mystery behind the words. So you're not you're not analyzing the words and and the phrases, but the whole mystery behind that that uh, psalm or that feast. <clears throat> but the third and highest form of attention is attention to God Himself, so that you're actually adoring and praising and worshiping God Himself, and not paying so much attention to the meaning of every individual word. And because then your mind is flipping from page to page and page to page, your mind is flipping to topic to topic to topic, rather than fixing it on one single unchanging thought, which is God himself, uh, the infinitely beautiful and loving God. Now let us move on to the second sign. The second sign of contemplation is this. The soul takes no pleasure in using the imagination or fixing it on any particular thing, earthly or heavenly. And this somewhat overlaps what has been said already, but it more specifically refers to aridity or dryness in prayer, basically the lack of sensible consolation in the things of God, but also the lack of sensible consolation in created things, so that the soul is kind of torn between the supernatural and the natural world, and that it doesn't seem to belong to either. The things of God, prayer, hearing Mass, spiritual reading— doesn't fill the soul with that sensible consolation and peace that it once did. And yet, one doesn't find consolation with worldly entertainment either. There is a hunger for God, and yet without sensible consolation. Now, if the soul were merely worldly and gave itself over to pleasure and distractions, then that would clearly explain the dryness in prayer. It is very important to have the right dispositions in the spiritual life, and prayer is a part of your whole life. So if your whole life is not right, then your prayer will not be right. So let me first talk about aridity and then talk about the dispositions for prayer and progress in prayer and contemplation. So many of us think that progress in prayer means that we will have the ability to pray with greater and greater ease and delight, and that we shall be increasingly filled with consolations and sensible peace and beautiful and holy thoughts and images. However, one could say that it is precisely the absence or disappearance of, this spirit, of these spiritual comforts and crutches that marks the beginning of real fervor and solid progress in one who is really striving to practice a deeper prayer life. For one who truly desires to grow closer to God by struggling to avoid all sin, even deliberate venial sin, and who has formed the habit of daily prayer, Aridity or dryness in prayer is usually a sign that all is well and one is progressing spiritually. The consoling feelings in prayer are usually given more at the beginning stages of the spiritual life. 
And beginners are apt to think that the loss of consolation means a defective prayer or a diminished love of God. We must not think that we have no fervor simply because we cannot feel it. Fervor and love of God are not in feelings and emotions, but in the will, in the desire for God and his will, and in the firm determination to avoid sin and to please him in all things. However unfelt all this may be, emotions may help our will and its work to love God, but they are not love itself. Feelings are not stable, uh, not solid foundations on which to build a deep spiritual life. Everything and anything can affect how we feel. The lack of sensible consolation may be due to any number of things, food, what we ate, the weather, stress, lack of sleep, indigestion. Therefore, we should not judge or measure the spiritual life by how we feel or not feel. True prayer, true spirituality must be based on faith, and this is above the senses, above mere feelings. So aridity is a normal and healthy experience in the spiritual life. Its presence does not destroy the value of prayer. In fact, it can greatly increase the value of our prayer in the sight of God, since you have to cling to God with greater trust, making pure acts of, uh, of your wills to, to believe in Him, to adore Him, to love Him, without, without the lollipop, without the candy bar of consolations. So, like, in the agony in the garden, our Lord's prayer was a dry and arid one. It was full of weariness and sorrow, yet it was infinitely powerful and full of love. So it's not important that we feel our acts of love and devotion. We should be satisfied that he feels them, that he uh, receives them. As long as we will to believe, as long as we will to adore God and trust him and love him, by that very fact, with the help of his grace, we do love him. We do adore him and trust him and believe in him. All feelings to the contrary notwithstanding. It is in the will. That's where love is, in the will, not the feelings. Abba Chapman says, The great danger is that people love God for his gifts and are always on the lookout for them and think all is lost when they have the little aridity. It is hard for them to learn to love aridity, to desire nothing so much as to be perennially dissatisfied with themselves, and full of an entirely vague and unsatisfactory longing for something unknown and unknowable. They have to learn this when they are plunged from time to time in the obscure night. But generally, they are not long in it, and so are able to bear it. But of course, they may have to go right through it into contemplation, and the rules are clear enough in St. John of the Cross. Elsewhere, Abba Chapman writes, We must have our times of desolation and trial. How can we show our love for God except by enduring? He showed his love for us by suffering. Besides, it is such trials that make us humble. We begin to see there is no good in us, no devotion, no stability in good. That must make us see that God is everything. The way to union with God is by humbling ourselves, by seeing that we have no goodness, how can we realize this except by being dry and unable to pray or be self-satisfied? It is a great grace that God should humble us and give us something to bear for him. Of course you would like some other trial instead. One always prefers an imaginary trial to an actual one. Humble yourself. Don't expect to be devout or happy either. Declare before God that you are incapable of a good thought, and you will find the only peace worth having." Unquote. Another quote of St. Teresa of Avila uh, shows us that aridity is a good thing. She says, 
I should never wish for any other prayer than that which would cause me to grow in virtue. So I should consider that a good prayer which was attended by many aridities, temptations, and desolations that left me more humble. Can he be said not to pray who is in the midst of such trials? On the contrary, if he offers them to God and bears them with conformity to his holy will, as he ought, this is prayer, and very often much better than he who wearies his brain with various reflections and persuades himself that he has made a good prayer if he has squeezed out four tears. Unquote. Now, I have said that it would be wrong for us to imagine that aridity is always a bad sign, indicating divine punishment, and that our spiritual life is all wrong and off track. However, sometimes aridity is our own fault, the result of, of a personal infidelity to divine grace. Obviously, a worldly indifferent soul who simply does not desire to live a spiritual life will not be filled with spiritual, spiritual consolations but instead will have a distaste for spiritual things. It's common sense. Similarly, in the case of a devout soul, aridity can sometimes be due to a habit of deliberate venial sin or to an inordinate attachment and affection for something or some sin which the soul knows to be wrong and contrary to God's will. And it should not be too difficult to understand the reason why such a one has difficulty in prayer or a diminished sense of interior peace and joy for the very heart of prayer is love, and love of God is union with his will. So prayer is nothing but a familiar friendship and communion with our Lord, and anything that makes or mars this friendship will promote or hinder our prayer, deliberately and habitually to will something outside of and contrary to the will of God will create an impediment, a decrease in real fervor not so much in the feelings as in the will. Instead of desiring to belong wholly to God, the soul is consciously and deliberately wounding this friendship by small infidelities and deliberately holding back part of its love. So much of our difficulty in prayer finds its source in the failure of one of the four purities of the spiritual life. Purity of conscience, purity of mind, purity of heart, and purity of action. So in order to get prayer right, the rest of our life must be put right. We must renounce uh, inordinate attachments, or else the aridity and disgust for spiritual things will most likely continue, and this will hinder our progress and take away our peace of soul. But if this is the case, we will not have to go scrupulously digging around in our conscience to find the quote-unquote sin causing the aridity, for it will usually be instinctively known to the honest and earnest soul. So I say this is very important that I don't want to cause scruples here. So aridity is, is no matter what, even if it is your fault, you still have to accept it uh, patiently and abandon yourself to divine providence. But you should quickly and, and briefly examine your conscience and if something sticks out like a sore thumb, and usually there is something that you know that you shouldn't be doing, uh, that is where you have to fix. Most probably our conscience will have already been reproaching us for quite some time. In this connection, uh, Abbot uh, uh, Boylan, in his book, Difficulties of Mental Prayer, writes, When we have just told Jesus that we love him with our whole heart, it is only if we are sincere that we can remain silent in that sentiment. Otherwise, we feel compelled to go on saying something lest we should hear him saying to us, if you really loved me, you would not do so and so. That is one of the ways in which our Lord molds us to his heart's desire. Unquote. 
After sincere reflection and a brief examination of conscience, we fail to find anything, any vice that we're not willing to renounce and work against, then we must be at peace and continue praying despite the dryness. For this prayer, this dryness is then a good sign, a sign of progress, something to be embraced since it purifies our love for God. So aridity is not a bad sign in itself. We need to embrace it. Much of our dissatisfaction with prayer is that often we are really trying to please ourselves instead of trying to please God in prayer. The motive of prayer has to be changed. We go to prayer to please God, not ourselves. And actually, as we become more and more spiritual, we can come to the point of preferring dryness to sensible consolation and tears of devotion. We long to love God with our whole hearts with a pure love, and we're afraid of letting our lower animal nature get too mixed up with our spiritual devotion, lest it decreases its purity. So sensible consolations can, in a sense, come to sicken and disgust the spiritual person. It doesn't want just feelings. It wants to love God truly. So the, the, the soul has grown from a child wanting candy that I can handle the meat now. I will handle the, the meat of the spiritual life. And, and it's not going to necessarily, everything and the meat and vegetables of the spiritual life, not all going to taste sweet, it, it, but it's true food for the spiritual life. So we long to please God and not ourselves. We want him and not that warm, fuzzy, euphoric feeling of sensible consolations. Because when we feel consoled, we're apt to take the feelings themselves as a great love for God. And the more tears, the holier we are or think we are. So often <clears throat> beginners in the spiritual life, they're praying so hard. They, with, with, they have all these great emotions and even tears sometimes come. Oh, I would give my life for God. But then, then a couple minutes later, someone misinterprets their action or misjudges them and they are ruined. They are destroyed and they can't handle that, that little cross of someone misunderstanding them. So the tears are not really indicative of, of a great love for God. So sensible consolations can come to feel cheap in comparison with God himself. Again, we don't want feelings about God. We want God himself. Abbot Chapman expresses a similar thought. There are two states in which the soul can be, consolation and aridity. To say, oh God, I love thee so much is the prayer of consolation. But what is our love? It is so miserable and unworthy. To say, oh God, I love thee so little is the prayer of aridity. Let us be satisfied with either, whatever God gives us best. But if we are to choose, I should say perhaps the last is the better. Aridity is fervor if God wants it. It is best for us. Besides, it keeps us humble, unquote. So along with aridity and prayer, the dark night of the senses plunges us into another trial that gets lumped into the second sign, and that of feeling like we are becoming worse spiritually despite all our efforts towards progress. So before I move into the third sign, I want to talk about this element uh, uh, as it is a very common experience. So it's often a searching trial in the spiritual life when all the comforting feelings and consolations and beautiful thoughts about holy things have dried up and vanished. And in their place is temptations and distractions. They seem to have been multiplied. 
and aridity becomes the usual state in which we find ourselves. But what is even more disturbing is when, in addition to all this, we become habitually aware of how very careless and slothful and cold and half-hearted we are in God's service. We feel so far away from God, and this thought pains us very much. We feel like total wretches, uh, without faith, without love, without virtue, completely unworthy of God. We used to be rather pleased with ourselves and thought of ourselves as being very good, but now we know and feel that we're not. As one man once said to me, he said, I used to think that I was a good person that occasionally did evil things. Now I realize that I am a bad person that occasionally does good things. That is the, that's some wisdom there. So this state fills us with concern, and we fear that we are going backwards in the spiritual life, that we are actually getting worse instead of better, despite all our struggle after virtue and holiness. But we have to be at peace. All that is progress, provided, of course, we retain in our heart the strong desire to avoid all sin and grow in union with God. The desire might not be felt, but it has to be there. So... uh, It's not as though we're actually getting worse. It's simply that by prayer and perseverance, and this prayer really is contemplation. God is infusing light into your soul. We begin to see ourselves in the light of God as we truly are with all our faults and imperfections and passions and evil inclinations. God is secretly infusing into our soul a spiritual light that is causing us to see ourselves more clearly than ever before. And although it feels as though we are growing spiritually blind, in a sense we are, for this light is God and he's too bright for our feeble vision of our weak soul at this point. What is peculiar in this state is that although we feel that we are great sinners, we're not conscious of having any serious sin on our conscience and that we often find ourselves hard put to find sufficient matter for confession. And this is a very good sign, for we are growing sensitive to sin, which is not the same thing as being scrupulous. How could the saints feel like they were the worst sinners and yet experienced divine favors at the same time? The saints did not feel that they got closer to God, but that God had gotten closer to them. God condescended, as it were, to their lowliness. Because self-love is the obstacle to sanctity. And since the will always follows the intellect, we love what we know. We love ourselves because we see ourselves as lovable for our own sake and apart from God. So for God to make us holy, he must show us that we are not lovable in ourselves, that rather we're despicable sinners, that we have nothing good of ourselves that he has not given us. And so he has to slowly and slowly destroy our inordinate self-love of himself. Anything good in us is from him and from him alone. He's the source of all good. We have to understand that all progress in virtue is ultimately based on progress in humility, the true knowledge of our own wretchedness and sinfulness and nothingness compared to the all-holy God, and that without him, we are indeed nothing and can do absolutely nothing. So when we experience dryness and darkness and confusion and temptation and distraction, the inability to pray, and we accept all these patiently at God's, as God's will for us here and now, then we will be growing in humility because we will become less and less self-satisfied. It is much better to suffer these trials and to walk about in the dark 
than to be pleased and satisfied with ourselves, lest we have the least touch of the Pharisee. The virtue of humility is not very, uh, not very attractive in oneself, although it's very attractive in others. We love to be around a humble person. Humility is not a very enjoyable virtue to possess, except in the sense that it will ultimately bring great peace to our soul. So Pharisaism, the, the great uh, disease of the Pharisees, on the other hand, is enjoyable in oneself, for it makes one feel all warm and cozy about ourselves and quite self-satisfied and smug. Yet nothing is so repulsive when we see others infected with it. So the disposition of the humble publican in the parable must become our own. O God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So humility is a grace and cannot be put on as one does a coat. It has to, it must in a sense be burned into our soul by trials and humiliations which providence sends our way. And one of these trials is the dark night of the senses. So when we have this dryness and the inability to meditate and the confusion uh, in our spiritual life is a good thing. It humbles us, shows us what we are of ourselves. Because we don't want to rely on our own goodness and our own strength. Father Dekasad says this about, he writes to a nun who had this condition. He said, what? You want... What you want is to find support and comfort in yourself and your good works. Well, this is precisely what God does not wish and what he cannot endure in souls aspiring after perfection. What? Lean on yourself? Count on your works? Could self-love leave a more miserable fruit? God desires to deliver you from all this and to destroy in you gradually all the help and confidence you derive from yourself so that he may be your sole support and hope Unquote. One of my favorite quotes from St. Therese of the Child Jesus is this, when she, she uh, her great joy was to realize her nothingness apart from God. She said, the Almighty has done great things for me, and the greatest is to show me my littleness and my helplessness for any good. I do not grieve in seeing that I am weakness itself. On the contrary, it is in this I glory, and I expect each day to discover new imperfections, and I acknowledge that these lights concerning my nothingness do me more good than the lights concerning the faith. Unquote. So when we begin to acquire this experimental knowledge of our own helplessness, then only can we truly feel our complete need for God. And we should be at peace and rejoice in this knowledge because God is goodness and mercy itself. So in the first stages of the spiritual life, we tend to think and that we are habitually doing and suffering God's will in everything. But as time goes on and as we progress in prayer and spirituality, we come to the second stage of seeing more clearly that we are really half-hearted about serving God. The earlier stage was much more comfortable and pleasing but it was only a half-truth or a tenth truth. The third stage goes further. We habitually realize that we are never doing or suffering God's will except very imperfectly and without a pure intention. This realization will make the devout soul sad and dissatisfied with its service. Now, the fact that we are dissatisfied with our soul is a good sign that we are on the right road. Abbot Chapman writes, this means, obviously, a considerable growth in grace. In the first stage, we feel as if we were good, and we are not. In the third, we, we habitually long to be more completely united with God's will, because we are beginning to realize just a little how much more is wanted. This is clearly a far closer union than the first. Unquote. So if we are determined to keep on struggling to pray and to conquer 
self, it proves that we are not lukewarm, despite all feelings to the contrary. So it's a tremendous grace to actually want to serve God better. The majority of people do not think, do not even think about God enough to care whether or not they please him or offend him or if they are making spiritual progress. So that's what I tend to tell people, is that they come uh, uh, all discouraged and and saddened that they don't love God enough. And they're they're upset with their service of God. They hunger for more, and they feel like they're the most miserable wretches. And that's a good thing. That's a good feeling. That is uh, great progress in the spiritual life, that feeling alone. Because again, the majority of people would... Couldn't care, couldn't care less of how they serve God. So that is a grace to have that dissatisfaction with oneself. Abbot Chapman, in one of his letters, said, you can't be a saint until you think yourself a pig, which is a humorous way of saying that you need humility. Abbot Chapman writes, always remember that fervor is the contrary of lukewarmness, and therefore it always means, for us poor sinners, a profound dissatisfaction with our own state. When you become a saint, you will believe yourself the greatest of sinners. That is real fervor, when combined with the determination still to go on fighting. St. John of the Cross explains, tepidity is satisfaction with your own state. Fervor is dissatisfaction, active, active dissatisfaction therewith. It is not necessary to want God and want nothing else. You have only to want to want God and want to want nothing else. Few get beyond this, really. But God is so loving and takes not only the will for the deed, but the will to will or the wish to will. Consequently, I can't help advising you to pray. The longer one prays, the better it goes. But when it goes badly, it goes well, for it becomes a continual humiliation. Oh my God, you see, I can't pray. I can't even desire. I can't keep my attention, etc., etc. The great thing is union with God's will. Hence, one can pass the time in accepting one's own baseness and incapacity. This is all you can expect of me, and I don't ask for one crumb of comfort more, only not to sin. Unquote. So that Abba Chapman there is showing you that fervor, that it's kind of a paradox in the spiritual life. <clears throat> the more you feel dissatisfied with yourself, that's really when uh, you're the most fervent. When you are lukewarm, you're all satisfied. I'm good. I don't need any progress. I'm good. I don't need to love God anymore. I think I do. I do pretty well. No, a, a real someone who's really striving and really making progress will feel that they haven't gone far enough. Abba Chapman again elsewhere, he says, fervor consists in dissatisfaction with ourselves, provided we also have confidence in God. But God has done so much for you that you have every reason for confidence. He is leading you on to perfection by ways that you know not. He never takes us by the way we should expect. So do not worry, but accept all your imperfections when past or present as inevitable and use them as steps up. But future ones are neither to be wished for nor to be worried about. Now, finally, the third sign. And the third sign is this. The soul delights to be alone in quiet and repose, waiting lovingly upon God without reflecting upon anything or even desiring to do so. Now, this is the most important of the signs. The other signs could be caused by other factors, as I've explained. But this one is the deciding sign 
indicating that God is truly drawing the soul to himself by special grace. Of this sign, however, I won't spend too long discussing it or analyzing it, as it's kind of beyond words to describe, because each person will experience it differently, and there's varying degrees of intensity of contemplation. It's very hard to put into words. In the midst of all the aridity and confusion that the soul is going through in this transitional period, this crisis in the spiritual life, with the inability to meditate and derive any consolation from prayer and with any other extra temptations or trials, in the midst of all that, the soul found a secret source of spiritual strength and joy. A new kind of prayer arose in the soul, a very simplified kind of prayer. The soul delights to simply be in the presence of God in silent, wordless adoration, a gazing upon God in face, faith, not with the eyes, because God is not a physical being, but with the intellect, with the mind, with the soul itself, with the heart, more, more uh, to put it better, gazing upon God in love. The soul doesn't know what exactly is captivating it, but it knows that something is, or rather someone is. The great spiritual writer, Father Sodrew, in his two-volume work, The Degrees of the Spiritual Life, describe it very well. He says, This happiness which it enjoys in thus fixing all its loving attention upon God makes the contemplative soul seek solitude and silence. While discharging all its social duties cheerfully, it is only happy when it is set free from them and can find itself once more alone with God. Moreover, this last sign persists even in arid quietude when the soul experiences a perpetual need for prayer and seeks after solitude and silence without, however, attaining to the enjoyment of God, all overrun as it is by every kind of preoccupation and distraction. This constant desire which it experiences to give itself up to prayer, this search, this thirst for God, shows that the will remains united to him, and that this aridity is not a consequence of any want of fervor." Unquote. There is that famous story of St. John Vianney and the old farmer uh, that uh, would come into the, the church to pray. He would come alone many, many times, and the old man would stay for a long time and never use any prayer book. And the cure of ours approached him and, and, and asked him what prayers he said. Because he noticed he was there for so long. And the old man said, I just look at him and he looks at me. And that is contemplation in a nutshell. That is loving contemplation. I look at him and he looks at me. And I don't need words. It's beyond that. We just love. I love him and he loves me. Father John Grew, another one of my spiritual writer, uh, favorite spiritual writers, says, Instead of the complicated and fatiguing exercise of the memory, the understanding, and the will, which faculties are applied now to one subject, now to another in meditation, God often brings the soul into a simple prayer in which the mind has no other object than a confused and general idea of God, which nourishes it without any effort as infants are nourished by milk. He detaches her from the multitude of practices, which, like so many fetters, would now only hamper her and lead her away from her simplicity, unquote. And again, just to back up, to see the big picture again, let me quote Father Paul de Jaeger. I think this is his book, uh, uh, Trust in God. He wrote, 
At the beginning of the spiritual life, generally, although not invariably, God gives consolations at once more rich and vivid in that he desires to lead the soul to higher things. In this way, he seeks to detach it from all those human joys that are negligible in comparison with the intimate joys of divine love. Subsequently, when he perceives the soul to be sufficiently detached from earthly consolations, he begins to deprive it of the conscious joys of the spirit. Gradually, he takes from it the inclination and the pleasure which it feels in performing acts of virtue, acts of charity, acts of humility and mortification. He filches from it, too, the joys of prayer. Without exaggerating too greatly the changes wrought in it, the soul begins to experience considerable difficulty in meditating and praying, as before, by the use of the intellect. For this it feels a secret aversion. Beneath the action of God, its whole life is simplified. Its spiritual activity seems to grow strangely less. Whereas it loved formally to express itself in prayer in varying sentiments of humility, of mortification, of trust, of self-denial, of love of God, it feels itself impelled to talk in all simplicity with God, and even to remain near Him in the simple and peaceable attitude of trusting love, like a child in the arms of its mother. Unquote. <clears throat> And again, from Father Gabriel Diefenbach, the Capuchin priest who wrote the little book, Common Mystic Prayer, which is reprinted, I believe. I highly recommend uh, people to get this book. He says, quote, It is admittedly difficult to convey clearly what takes place in this prayer because of the absence of the particular and the distinct but those who experience it will very likely grasp what is intimated in the description. God's infusion is an indistinct general one, which he moves the will powerfully to love him. This prayer may be said to be rooted in the will, for love is the most evident characteristic of it. It desires God steadily, not so much to understand as to love, embrace, possess him. When the soul communes with God, not by the mind thinking and reflecting, but by the deeper activity already described as concentrated in a simple view of the understanding and a simple movement of the will, we have the essential contemplative or mystical act. It is this that constitutes the mystic and not the incidental trappings. A concise and yet comprehensive statement of mysticism defines it as knowing by pure ideas after an angelic manner. This expresses the psychological process of the mystical act very well. It suggests a similarity to the angelic mode of knowing. The angels, devoid of bodily sense, receive knowledge without any reasoning process. Thus their knowledge is not obtained by sense operations, but by the infusion of pure ideas, ideas free of all materiality. Unquote. So this kind of prayer has been called many things by different spiritual writers, but it all is basically the same prayer. It has been called the prayer of simplicity. I believe Abbot, uh, I mean, Bishop Bossuet, the, the Bishop of Mew, uh, wrote about it in the prayer of simplicity. It has elements of that uh, infused contemplation. It's been called the prayer of faith, the prayer of simple regard, uh, acquired contemplation by some Carmelite writers. St. John of the Cross calls it simply infused contemplation. And sometimes uh, there was a vigorous controversy over the centuries on what to call this prayer because St. Teresa of Avila, 
who is a great authority on matters of prayer, reserved the term contemplation for only the higher forms of passive prayer, starting with the prayer of quiet, because this she would have called this prayer more uh, the prayer of recollection, because the soul still has to do something. So it is a grace. God is doing his part, but you have to do your part as well. So she didn't call that contemplation. However, St. John of the Cross, a doctor of the church, had no hesitation in calling this type of prayer infused contemplation. It's the beginning. It's just the, it's imperceptible but it is infused, just like grace is infused, the virtues are infused, this contemplation is infused, it's a gift from God. He knew that, that in this prayer, God is secretly infusing knowledge directly into the soul. And again, this, the beginning of this contemplation is imperceptible to the one experiencing it, because it is unfelt in the senses. It's very uh, simple. It leaves the soul dry and in a kind of night. The soul is barely conscious of this contemplation, except more of from the negative side of the effects of the ligature and aridity. And that is why the three signs are important because you can see the indirect effects of contemplation. Let me again quote Father Gabriel of St. Mary Magdalene, whom I quoted in the last episode with that, uh, and, and this episode earlier as well with that seminarian. He writes this later on in his book, when directing souls, one not rarely meets someone who speaks thus. Father, I do not know, but in my prayer, I seem to be no longer doing anything. Then how do you spend your time? I stay there in the presence of God. Do you find it tedious? No, I feel it is good. I, I am happy, but it seems to me that I'm doing so little. And do you love God? I seem to do so. Are you occupied with him? Yes, as I say, I remain there, simply keeping him company. When I seem to have less contact with him, I make some act of love, and thus immediately pull myself together again. Are you very distracted? Yes, sometimes tiresome thoughts come to me, but I dislike them, and as soon as I notice them, I return to God. Do you derive any results from your prayer? Oh yes, Father, it strengthens me. After prayer, I always go to my duty with more courage, then all is well, my child. Go on as you are doing. But Father, I am doing nothing. Be quite tranquil. I tell you, all is well. Usually when dealing with souls that have reached the prayer of simple loving attention, especially when this takes on a very arid form, one of the greatest difficulties experienced by the director is to make them understand that this way of prayer is very good. They seem unable to believe it, accustomed as they were hitherto to sensible meditation, wherein they proceeded by way of acts and distinct reflections. But having been reassured several times, they return again with the same doubts. They would rather tend to get on the director's nerves if he chanced to be nervy. And yet there is nothing else to say. They must be taught to content themselves with a the manner of praying." Unquote. Here, Father Gabriel is repeating almost word for word, the doctrine of St. John of the Cross. And this is what St. John of the Cross wrote. The spiritual person must learn to remain in a loving attention to God in quietness of mind, although it seems to him that he is doing nothing. For so little by little and very quickly, divine peace and calm will be infused into a soul with admirable and lofty knowledge of God enwrapped in divine love. 
And let him not meddle with forms, meditations, or imaginations, or any reasoning. Let the soul be not disturbed and drawn from it drawn from its contentment and peace, which can only bring about distaste and repugnance. And if, and if, as we have said, he has scruples, thinking that he is doing nothing, let him see that it is no small thing to pacify his soul and bring it into his, this calm and peace without any other working and desire, which is what our Lord asks of us through David, saying, Vacante et videte conium ego sum Deus, as if he had said, learn to be empty of all things, that is to say, interiorly and exteriorly, and you shall see that I am God. Or in another translation, be still and know that I am God. Father Gabriel Diefenbach says this, This simple prayer is a good to be wished for with all one's heart. With it comes all other goods to the soul, strength, consolation, virtue, ever-increasing union with his loving divine spouse. Such prayer indeed belongs in the line of development of the prayer life and has ever been considered in Catholic tradition as the likely and normal outcome of a spiritual life earnestly lived. Some who come to this prayer may be very imperfect. They frustrate grace because of voluntary strayings, attachments, sense indulgence, worldliness. They feel miserable because they cannot meditate and find no relish in prayer books or exercises of devotion that previously brought consolation. Yet because of these willful imperfections, they get nothing out of that simple prayer to which God is not now drawing them. They may not be aware of what the obstacles are, or even of their own unwillingness to get rid of them. They may conclude that their apparent distaste for prayer comes from causes outside themselves, but the causes are within, in their unruly senses, interior and exterior. They yield to daydreaming, vainglorious thoughts, vindictive thoughts, imaginings of pleasure of sense, and so on. Thus they hinder God's operation and lose the grace and profit of simple prayer. Let the soul of good will that desires to advance and to taste of the sweet intimacy of friendship with Jesus, let that soul pursue its prayer seriously. Then if it finds difficulties and obstacles, these may be only apparent and not real. For the soul must pray. It is a necessity of human nature and should therefore be easy. The difficulty comes in are not understanding the true nature of prayer or some of its changing phases. When one knows this and learns to correspond to the workings of grace, one perseveres with little trouble and soon comes to relish prayer as that which is as natural almost as breathing. And if grace brings one to a more effective and unitive form, a contemplative form, a prayer of the heart, there is no reason to shy away at the idea of contemplation or at the word mysticism, as at some unscalable peak in the Christian and spiritual life. A difficulty here is in inducing a person whom God is leading in this way to give up his elementary notions of prayer. At least the desire to pray is present, and this of itself is prayer. Unquote. As in all things, a little knowledge can be dangerous, and when someone who has read a little bit about mystical theology, when they hear about contemplation and the typical advice that I've read today, namely, uh, do nothing, don't pray, don't force yourself to think in prayer, uh, don't force yourself uh, the vocal prayers, but, but to give yourself into that simple view of God, they will immediately think that this is the heresy of quietism. 
I've heard it said even by even by clerics, even by priests who don't know better, they they are afraid so much of quietism that they are rejecting real mysticism, real contemplation, real prayer by approved spiritual writers and doctors of the church like St. John of the Cross. Everything is lumped in. Everything's quietism. And that is totally ignorant. And I don't have time to go into the heresy of quietism. Next episode, maybe I will. I do want to talk about false mysticism as opposed to true mysticism and contemplation. But in brief, quietism is a false mysticism which tried to get souls into a state of pure passiveness, a pure passivity. They wanted you to, to get into a stage of pure love of God by making you uh, completely passive in everything. So the soul wasn't even supposed to make acts of love for God or wasn't even supposed to resist temptations, wasn't supposed to make acts of virtue, supposed to do nothing. Let God do everything, you do nothing. That's pure love. That's false mysticism. But in true contemplation, what we're talking about here is not actually doing nothing because the soul, when it is gazing upon God, when it is wholly occupied with God, it is actually doing something. It is loving him. It is actually making an act of, a will, of the will, an intense act of will. It is trying to clear distractions, trying to ignore the, uh, anything that would come uh, in, be, in between this loving regard of God. So it's, it's, it's active. And love is not doing nothing. Now, you may not be reciting words. You may not be using your reason. You may not be trying to form uh, lovely pictures in your head about mysteries of the faith, but you are doing something. You're loving God. It's like a mother who is uh, uh, at the bedside of, of her little child, her baby. A mother could just watch the baby for hours and just love the baby. Now, it doesn't have to say anything. It doesn't have to read a formula, but it's actually doing something. Same thing with, with two lovers. They just are in each other's presence. They hold hands. They look at each other. They don't have to read a big, uh, you know, roll up a scroll and say, uh, I love being in your presence. I love doing, you know, that's not necessary when true love is present. But yet the smallest look, the smallest sigh speaks volumes when love is there. You just want to be with that person. That's not nothing. That's not uh, emptiness. That is being full. Because the whole reason of prayer formulas and uh, devotions is to stir up acts of devotion, to stir up acts of charity in the soul. And contemplation is charity, is that act of love. So you don't need the means. Now you have the end. And it becomes habitual, that act of love. So that's not quietism. That is true mysticism. That's true prayer, true contemplation. And we'll hopefully go into that in, in a future episode. What, what often happens is as you give yourself to this prayer more and more, this presence of God becomes more and more perceptible. At first, this is very faint. All you know that is that you love this someone who you call God, even though you don't know or can express precisely what it is that cap is captivating you. But you find in this presence a peace and happiness. But as this prayer develops, 
it eventually becomes uh, the prayer of quiet and the prayer of union, where the soul has no doubt that God is present, that the Holy Trinity is present. And there eventually comes something that the mystics call divine touches and ecstasies and raptures. These are very rare. One might have to persevere for decades in order in this dry form of contemplation. But I like to use the example of, of being in a dark room with someone else. Now, the lights are off. You can't see them. Uh, you don't feel them. But yet, yet you know someone's in the room. There's a sense. It's just like we have that feeling someone's here. I sense that presence. That is very similar to what contemplation is. Now, at first, at first, it's very imperceptible. You don't, you don't get that. All you know is that I can't meditate the same way. I'm drawn to this simple prayer. But as you grow, as you give yourself to this prayer, that presence becomes more perceptible. Someone is here. And you know that that someone is very lovable. And you love that person. And you become transfixed. But you don't know what the presence is. You don't have a clear idea, a clear vision. But yet you're growing in love with that someone. That presence is God. That's practicing the presence of God in a more perceptible way. It becomes experimental in the sense of uh, experimental knowledge of God. It's not just an abstract theory that, yeah, God exists. No, I actually feel that he's present. I actually know he is. And it's very hard to explain, very hard to describe. It may take decades. It may God may never take you to the next level, but there are higher levels where that presence becomes so real, where you have no doubt God has touched you in a sense of a, a deep union of your soul with God. But this is a grace to be longed for and loved with your whole heart. And it draws you away from other forms of prayer when you're in the presence of that uh, divine person. Now, Father Gabriel Diefenbach writes, This simplification applies even in the matter of explicit intentions made in prayer. Some souls are reduced to such a loving simplicity in things spiritual as to dwell, so to say, in the very atmosphere of love. It is difficult for them to form particular intentions. Their distaste for doing so may at first distress them until they arrive at a truer understanding of prayer. The case comes to mind of a person who was long led to contemplation without suspecting it. This person was working against the call of grace for several years by forcing endless particular acts and devotions, not only in an effort to enkindle some feeling of fervor, but especially with a view to liberating the soul of a deceased relative. This apparently was the subject of the prayer life, and it was hindering progress, if not causing distaste for prayer. When this person was instructed how to correspond with the action of the Holy Ghost, everything became clear, and a new and simplified spiritual life began. Such persons may think they are not helping departed relatives and friends without making explicit applications and intentions, but they must come to understand that their new way of prayer is the way of unceasing love, and is so vastly pleasing to the Heavenly Spouse, the infinitely generous Divine Lover, that he will grant all and more than they could obtain from particular intentions. For this God of all consolations, who searches the reins and heart, is delighted to anticipate the intentions and requests of the loving soul. Unquote.
Now I need to wrap up this episode, but I wanted to give one last excerpt from Abbot Chapman's Spiritual Letters. It is a longer excerpt of great practical advice in regards to the stage of prayer that he wrote to a nun in 1913. Eventually, this letter was printed into a pamphlet afterwards entitled Contemplative Prayer. And in those days, it quickly sold out of copies, so it was very popular. I include it here as it is very practical and should be of help to many. I quote from the beginning of this letter earlier in the episode, but now I I wanted to uh, quote the bulk of the letter just to finish it up. The rules to be observed by those who find themselves in this state, and it is the ordinary state of most of those who belong to a contemplative order, are extremely simple. St. John of the Cross has explained in the passages which immediately follow those to which I referred above. But a few notes, founded on his teaching and also on the experience of a number of people, will possibly be useful. 1. All those who find it impossible to meditate, not from laziness or lukewarmness, and find they cannot fix their thoughts on a subject or understand the meaning of the words unless they cease to feel they are praying, are meant to cease all thinking and only make acts of the will. 2. There is sometimes a period when meditation is sometimes possible, sometimes not. In this case, use meditation whenever it is possible. This state will not last long. 3. Reading a little, or one minute's consideration of some great truth, or a few prayers, may be very useful to help recollection at the beginning of prayer, but they are not necessary. 4. Let the acts come. Don't force them. They are They ought not to be fervent, excited, anxious, but calm, simple, unmeaning, unfelt. Otherwise, there is danger of our sensitive nature and emotion getting mixed up with the prayer. There are to be no feelings. We are not to know what we mean. To some, God may someday give more definite knowledge and love, but I speak to beginners. Let us be thankful if we are like this for no more than twenty years. 5. The acts will tend to be always the same. The first stage is usually, I think, I am a miserable sinner, have mercy on me, or something to this effect. But the principal stage consists of this, O God, I want thee, and I do not want anything else. That is the essence of pure contemplative prayer. Until the presence of God becomes vivid, then it may change, and praise or exaltation may be the chief or the sole act. But I imagine there is no rule. This is in the fully developed prayer of quiet. 6. For those who are able to practice this prayer and who feel this want of God, interior mortification is as easy as it was formerly difficult. Any willful immortification or imperfection stops prayer at once, unless it is repudiated. 7. The time of prayer is passed by beginners in the act of wanting God. It is an idiotic state and feels like the complete waste of time, until gradually it becomes more vivid. The strangest phenomena is when we begin to wonder whether we mean anything at all, and if we are addressing anybody, or merely repeating mechanically a formula we do not mean. The word God seems to mean nothing. If we feel this curious and paradoxical condition, we are starting on the right road, and we must beware of trying to think what God is, and what he has done for us, etc., or what we are before him, etc., because this takes us out of prayer at once and spoils God's work, as St. John of the Cross says. Probably this is what St. Anthony meant when he said that no one is praying really if he knows what he is and what God is. The saying is often referred to ecstatic prayer, 
but this seems to rob the words of all interest. St. Anthony must have meant the lower kinds of contemplative prayer, for he cannot have excluded all forms but ecstasy from true prayer. 8. Progress may perhaps be seen when the acts are less frequent, and we are conscious of one continued act rather than its repetition. 9. Distractions are of two kinds. A. The ordinary distractions, such as one has in meditation, which take one right away, and B. The harmless wanderings of the imagination alone, while the intellect is, to all appearance, idle and empty, and the will remains fixed on God. These are quite harmless. 10. When these distractions remain all the time, the prayer is just as good, very often much better. The will remains united, yet we feel utterly dissatisfied and humbled. 11. But we come away wanting nothing but God. 12. The real value of prayer can be securely estimated by its effects on the rest of the day. It ought to produce very definite effects. A. A desire for the will of God, exactly corresponding to the irrational and unmeaning craving for God, which went on in prayer. B. The cessation of multiple resolutions. We used to make and remake resolutions, never keeping them for long. Now we make only one, to do and suffer God's will, and we keep all our old ones, or rather they seem to keep themselves without any trouble on our part. C. Hence we have arrived at simplicity. All our spiritual life is unified into the one desire of union with God and His will. It is for this that we are made, and we have found a lodestone which draws us. 13. As to progress and knowledge. A. With some people there is no knowledge of God or of His nearness, only a blind certainty that He knows our want. We cannot think of His being present, for thinking stops prayer. B. But others have a vague, indefinable knowledge that God is there. This should be preserved all day long by those who feel it. It grows more and more definite, and yet remains just as indefinite. That is to say, the soul becomes more and more definitely conscious of being in the presence of something undefinable, yet above all things desirable, without any the more arriving at being able to think about it or speak about it, more and more conscious of its own nothingness before God, without knowing how, more and more convinced of the nothingness of creatures, without reasoning on the subject. C. Again, there are flashes of the infinite. It is difficult to find an expression for this. When, for an instant, a conception passes like lightning of reality, eternity, etc., these leave an impression that the world is dust and ashes. This effect must be carefully preserved outside the time of prayer. Some people are more liable to these perceptions than others are. In some people, they are habitual and the less valued for this, and they do not produce the fruit in conduct as they ought. D. In the developed prayer of quiet, the soul does know that God is there, without being able to say how. The pleasurable feelings of which St. Teresa of Avila speaks do not seem to be essential to the prayer of quiet, but when they are there, the soul may either be urged by them to more vehement desire, or be satisfied, and rather praise than pray. 14. It is worth noting that praise is in itself more perfect than simply wanting God for the latter is rather hope than charity. Praise is the occupation of heaven when the desire is fully satisfied. Even on earth, giving, God, giving glory to God is the whole duty of the creature. 
But to desire God is right, for man must desire in this world where he cannot be satisfied with creatures, and where he cannot fully attain to God. This is the virtue of hope, the most practical of virtues in this world, the virtue which most obtains for us an increase of charity. And the want of God includes charity, for God is not only desired as our own good, but as being in himself infinite goodness, and this desire of him is in itself a praise of him for being what he is. 15. Outside of Prayer A. Meditation must never be dropped. It need not be elaborate consideration, but a mere glance at the mysteries of our Lord, especially of the Passion. Most people will find it very easy and helpful to make the Stations of the Cross in private. B. Similarly, examination of conscience becomes automatic so long as contemplative prayer is kept up. Good resolutions make themselves. C. Imperfections and even sins are such a help to that humility which is the condition of prayer that they seem almost a help rather than a hindrance. To feel utterly crushed and annihilated, incapable of any good, wholly dependent on God's undeserved and infinite mercy, is the best and only preparation for prayer. It means an entire confidence, an exaltation of being nothing because God is all, which brings the only peace which is true peace. D. A little practice makes it possible to meditate a little, or at least to retain a thought of some mystery or some great truth without losing prayer, that is, the consciousness of God. But this should not be indulged in during prayer time, as it is a half-and-half -half state which produces far less effect in the soul than pure prayer does, in which there is no thought. E. Every kind of self-indulgence or willf fully willful imperfection, that is, doing what God asks us not to do, or omitting what we know he wishes us to do, makes prayer impossible until it is disowned. For contemplative prayer implies a state of wanting God and wanting God's will, which is the same thing. F. But it does not follow that the beginner is to be expected to show at all a high degree of perfection. God does not show the soul all its faults, nor all it has eventually to give up. It gives up something, and in time he will ask more. Meanwhile, it has faults which are obvious enough to others, though probably not to itself. A few hints may be added about the prayer itself. A. Beginners want to be alone or in the dark. Practice makes this less necessary, but it is rare that a contemplative is independent of externals. It is easier to be recollected when there is no noise, no distraction. The imagination has to be kept quiet. It is generally easiest to pray before the Blessed Sacrament. The night is a good time. The early morning is perhaps the best of all. B. The simplest way of making an act of attention to God, though without thinking of Him, is by an act of inattention to everything else. This is the same act that one makes when one tries to go to sleep. C. As distractions, when involuntary, do not spoil our prayer, and when merely of the imagination scarcely even disturb it, we ought to be perfectly satisfied to have them. We are not to be resigned to them, but more, to will them, for a contemplative is never to be resigned to God's will, but to will it. The result of this practice will be to decrease distractions by decreasing worry. If we only want God's will, there is no room for worry. D. One must accept joyfully and with the whole will exactly the state of prayer which God makes possible for us here and now. We will to have that and no other. It is just what God wills for us. We should like to be wrapped to the third heaven, but we will to be as we are, dry or distracted, or consoled, 
as God wills. It is just the same out of prayer. We may wish for a great many things, for a good dinner or for more suffering or the prayer of quiet without any imperfection, provided these are involuntary wishes. But we will only what we have, what God's providence has arranged for us. Only no sin, we repeat, only no imperfection, unquote. And Abba Chapman, in his letter, con uh, concludes, I think you may find some part of this useful to yourself, and you might communicate it to several others. I have some in mind, but I don't like to mention names. But to those who can meditate, what I have said will be mere nonsense. But it is not nonsense to those who cannot think and find that by doing nothing and letting God work imperceptibly, they begin to live quite a different life, unquote. And now in conclusion, for one reason or another, as known to God alone, there are many devout souls who have not been given the prayer of contemplation, but who are nevertheless holy and very dear to him. Contemplation itself is not holiness, but it is a very powerful means that can lead one to a deep union with God more quickly and easier easily than other forms of prayer. And this is why ordinary contemplation, and we're not talking about ecstasies and revelations, those are accidentals. Those aren't the essence of mysticism. They aren't the essence of contemplation or prayer. But ordinary contemplation, this imperceptible infused knowledge of God, is a grace to be earnestly yet humbly asked for from God. And one should endeavor to dispose one's soul for it by recollection, simplicity of life, purity of heart, because contemplation will not, quote-unquote, hatch in the soul until it is fertilized, as it were, by divine grace. And it cannot be fertilized until it is made fertile, that is, until it, the soul is prepared by much prayer and recollection and detachment. Contemplation is a gift. It's a grace. And that's something that we can force ourselves into. So God must bring us into this state, and hence the importance of knowing the signs which indicate that one is being introduced to this prayer so that one can cooperate and not frustrate his work. One begins to contemplate, not because it sounds fun or one would like to be a contemplative, but because the power to pray in other ways becomes more and more difficult and distasteful, if not impossible. For anyone just off the street, as it were, to attempt to contemplate in the traditional sense of the term would be as futile as a hen sitting on a plastic egg. This is one of the dangers of centering prayer which is so much in vogue in some places today. Some monasteries, some religious communities have centering prayer. It is very near that 7th century, 17th century heresy of quietism, since by it one attempts to make oneself a contemplative by either remaining completely passive or idle or by the use of certain Eastern meditation breathing techniques, rather than by the traditional practice of Catholic spirituality. Real contemplation is a grace, and the sign that it is starting is those three signs we went over. And it is in someone who is avoiding habitual mortal sin, trying to avoid uh, uh, venial sin as well. It's not just someone off the street learning a technique. It is a grace. All this is by way of caution. It's not meant to discourage one from contemplation, because the principle that we should follow in prayer is simply one of common sense. I've said it before. We must pray as we can and not try to force ourselves to pray as we can't. And this principle cuts both ways. On the one hand, we should not prematurely attempt to pray in a way above us, as if we could make ourselves mystics by brute force. 
for then we would be outstepping divine grace. But on the other hand, we must not be afraid to let go of old methods and devotions and to follow the prompting of divine grace when we feel attracted to a more simple way of prayer. There are many people who try to pray contrary to their attraction in prayer in a manner they once prayed or by a method they have read about in some book and have been unwisely advised to adopt. And souls should not souls should not be afraid to trust God and follow his grace when he's trying to lead them into the prayer of contemplation. More souls are contemplatives than they realize. More souls are mystics, perhaps low-level mystics, than they realized. This beginning of infused contemplation is a common mystic prayer. Mystic just means hidden. It doesn't mean high flute and mysticism. It doesn't mean you're floating. It doesn't mean you're a saint. Doesn't, uh, uh, mysticism and sanctity are two different things. Uh, they often are together, but they are separate. That the beginning of contemplation is a mystic prayer. St. Francis de Sales says it is called mystical because its conversation is altogether secret, and there is nothing said in it between God and the soul save only from heart to heart by a communication incommunicable to all but those who make it. Unquote. So mysticism just means hidden and mysterious and secret. And that's really this infused knowledge of God is hidden, so therefore it's mystic. So we must never be frightened or discouraged by any talk of dryness in prayer or about self-denials, the self-control, the self-sacrifice, or about any of the trials of the interior life uh, which sanctity demand, might demand of us. God will always give us proportionate strength and grace to bear any trial that he sends us or to make any sacrifice that he wants of us. And one might wonder if all this dryness and suffering is worth it, whether it were better not to try to lead, better not to lead a deeper prayer life, a more fervent spiritual life, if, if this is all we can expect. If, if we have perhaps discussed the dry aspect of prayer or suffering often, it's because it's easier to discuss and describe those common things, then the very real experience of the profound peace and joy that prayer and contemplation and deep union with God gives to the soul, those are beyond words. It's very hard to describe them. They can only really be known by experience. One has only to read, for example, St. Teresa of Avila's autobiography uh, to see the dizzying heights of union with God to which persevering prayer and its contemplation can lead us. She herself admitted that God sometimes gave her such great favors in prayer that just one of these experiences alone, one of them, would have amply compensated her for all the sufferings and efforts of her whole life. Think of that. One of the ecstasies, one of those experiences in prayer that she had in mysticism, compensating for all the sufferings, all the mortifications, all the penances, all the effort in being a contemplative. There is a whole world of spiritual realities, an undiscovered country of divine union that so few care to seek and explore. But the depth of union with God in prayer is a pearl of great price, but so few are willing to pay the price to obtain it. The only way for us to reach the promised land of mystical union with God is to embark on a long journey through a spiritual desert, a dark night. It would therefore be a tragic mistake for us to become discouraged and give up prayer when we are plunged into aridity and darkness, since they often indicate that one is following the path leading to union and sanctity. We must have our times of aridity, and this usually means most of the time. The reason for this is that unless we often experience the sense of losing God or our absolute need for him 
in one way or another, we will never earnestly seek Him each day. And if we do not earnestly and perseveringly seek Him, we will never find Him.